Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Unexpected Points. We're going to talk everything that happened in week 12, including the Patriots continuing to own me, how Russ is cooked, and now there's a lot more elbow room on the Jalen Hurts bandwagon, uh, but I'm not getting off. Not yet. All right, let's get into it. Tuesday edition, the week wrap-up edition, my favorite. I have notes on here for every single game, some stats, advanced stats that you may not have thought of or at least have gone by past some of your perceptions, maybe even in diametrically opposing directions from your perceptions for the week. So we'll get into all that. Another crazy week in the NFL, and I think there's one thing in the NFL we can count on is the fact that there's nothing that we can count on in the NFL from a week-to-week basis in the performances. Except for maybe the Patriots continuing to be good while I continue to fade them. Um, But I may have to do it again this week. I can't help it. They're playing the Bills. What am I going to do? Anyway, we'll talk about more about that later. Um, Before we get into anything, I just want to lay out some of the parameters for different numbers that I'm going to be talking about here, especially for any first time watchers slash listeners to this. Welcome. Uh, This is a safe space, even for those who maybe not analytically inclined, although we do dig into the numbers a little bit here, try to tie it to some narratives and then try to, of course, have some rants about things that are just annoying me generally and hopefully are are annoying you too out there in the atmosphere, out in the NFL atmosphere. So let's talk about what the format of today's show is going to be. Reviews for every game. I'm going to talk about the closing line going into the game. So you have a little context on you know, who was actually favored going into this game? Because sometimes I think that that gets lost for people who are not paying attention to that, what the narrative may be going into a game versus what the people that are staking their families' hard-earned money on these games is thinking are thinking going into this game. The actual score, and then what we call my adjusted score. And that's really the, the main focus where you can get some insight here in this one. And the adjusted score, for me, it's going to weigh success rate at a higher value than what it weighing the actual results. So there are two different measures. One success rate, and I, I do everything based upon expected points added. I don't want to get into the full definition of expected points added. You can look that up. But it basically judges every single play. It puts a point value on every single play. And success rate is you're measuring each. You're giving them either a successful grade or an unsuccessful grade on a play-by-play basis for whether you have positive expected points added or not. So if you did better out of a particular down distance, field position, and et cetera, situation, then an average NFL team would have done out of that situation. So by looking at success rates, in a smaller sample, a team that has a higher success rate is going to be more predictive going forward than a team that has great results. You know, if you have one big play and then 10 awful plays, you could sometimes have the same efficiency as a team that has five good plays and five bad plays. But you're not going to be necessarily successful going forward looking for those outlier plays. And this is something that was really going to come into play when we talk about the Seahawks in a second, about their reliance upon these big plays and what it means for them going forward. So by focusing on success rate more, we get a better opinion of what happened this particular game. I make adjustments based upon how many drives teams had, so then you know from their scoring there. I also weigh in these outlier plays that move around the success rate. And then I bring in other PFF metrics like drops, like turnover-worthy plays like 
uh, different grading aspects that come into the players here to help round out and try to get a better number going forward. Uh, so anyway, that's that's the whole thing. Let me just get into the first one, the first game here, and then you'll see as it goes along if you're one of the uninitiated, of course. So the first game I'm going to review is I'm going to review last night's Monday night football game. And this was not a stellar week for Island Games. We had the Seattle Seahawks at the Washington football team. This closed Seattle as a one-point favorite. And earlier this week, or last week, I should say, it was the other direction, maybe a point, a point and a half towards the football team. But when it moves between you know one point in either direction, it's not a huge deal normally. Most commonly scores are at least a three-point victory. Now, we did end up having a two-point victory here for the Washington football team, 17 to 15. Um, and if you look at my adjusted score, this is a pretty big difference between the final score and the adjusted score, one of the bigger ones from the weekend. So instead of a two-point differential, my adjusted score is 29 to 14, Washington. 29, a lot more than 17. 14, not a whole lot different than 15. But again, 15-point differential versus a two-point differential here. And this is a big-time loser for our uh, for my best bets, which I throw out a few of those on a weekly basis. Again, for entertainment purposes only, anyone paying attention here. Uh, I got Seattle at one and a half when I talked to you last Friday, plus one and a half. So it went to minus one and a half. So we got a, we got a sliver of closing line value on there. Did not matter. You could say it was a bad beat because it was a two-point difference and they went for that two-point conversion at the end and didn't get it and that's why you lost. But the reality was the football team was a much, much better team here. If Seattle would have happened to have gotten a cover on this one, it would have been kind of a process L. Still a process L. Um, oh, my, my other thing when we talk about these games and what I'm going to go through for each one that I did not mention before is I'm going to have a headline, which I'm going to say is based on the narrative that you're going to, I'm predicting that you're going to see out there this week. I'm going to give you an alternative headline for what happened in the game based upon what I saw and some, maybe some contrarianness also in there, maybe excessive contrarianness as part of this. And then later as part of the game, I'm also going to give you a number of the game. So one particular number that will be something to focus on uh, when you're thinking about how this game went. So the headline here is, I believe this may be the same headline that I had last week for the Seahawks, and that's not good. And that is Russ is cooked again, saying again, because I believe this is what I said would be the headline last week. And now I'm starting to believe it a little bit more. So my alternative headline is maybe they're right. But let's not ignore the fact that the running game was putrid. I think that's something that may go under the radar a little bit on this one. So let's talk about Russ first. Russ is going to be the big focus, despite the fact that the football team is the one who still has, the the team that still has a chance of making the playoffs at this point. So apologies, Washington football team fans. I will get to them in a little bit. But the focus is going to be on Russ. When you see a Hall of Fame quarterback have this type of struggle this type of continuing struggle when it goes back to midway through last season till now, it's going to be a big story. And this is a team that has been so successful underneath Pete Carroll with Russell Wilson there since he joined in 2012, who's drafted there in 2012. One of the most successful teams in the NFL. Uh, Russ, if you look at his winning record as a quarterback, it ranks right up there with anyone um, historically. And now they are three and eight. So 
under the best case scenario, they could end the season one game over 500, but they would have to clock off six in a row here, which is fairly unlikely. Okay, so the interesting thing about Russ in this game is it looked bad. If you watch this, it looked bad. They couldn't move the ball. And that comes to my number of the game, which is one. And that is the number of drives that the Seahawks had that were more than six plays, that they had more than six plays in a drive. They had a ton of three and outs. Sometimes they had a, you know, a first down and then a, on, the, on first down and then a three and out immediately afterwards. They couldn't get anything sustained. Now, they did have some big plays. So when you look at the numbers that are not success rate based, if you look at tradition, you know, the numbers that are showing what actually happened on a per play basis, they don't look as bad because of the big throw to Lockett and then the big touchdown to Swaim at the end of near the end of the game. So the numbers for Russ, 20 of 31, not great, but not bad, you know, almost making two thirds of his passes, completing two thirds of his passes there. 247 yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions, eight yards per attempt, which is a very healthy number, which is fine. Uh, two sacks. Sacks are normally a huge issue for Russ. Not too bad. You know, two sacks isn't isn't the worst thing for him, for a player who takes a lot of sacks. This is kind of, that's what you would almost expect from Russ when he drops back 30-something times for him to take a couple of sacks. But his grade, 56.4 grade. And this is a player that still grades better than his efficiency. So this is one of the few times where it flipped the script a little bit here. Russ just had some bad misses. He's still throwing bad passes sometimes. He's still not hitting the completion percentage over expected numbers that we would hope for. He was slightly over in this game, but he's a player who consistently was doing more like five, six, seven percent over expectation. So he does have accuracy problems. So I think the positive, if you can take anything away from this game, is that the fact that they're struggling, it still seems to be somewhat based upon his inaccuracy which may have something to do with the finger. That that may really be a thing. I keep on thinking it's going to fade away, but maybe it won't this season. Maybe it'll be a continuing thing this season, or or it's led to the finger leading to inaccuracy, which is leading to a lack of confidence and so on and so forth. But I try not to get into the psychology of these things as many as some others. So the reason that the grade is so bad on this one is, again, he was just unsuccessful on so many plays. There were so many dump-offs. Only one big-time throw, which is strange for him. Normally, he's a player who really excels at having those big-time big plays. And he had one very, very bad turnover-worthy play that was a dropped interception. That should have been an easy-ish interception that that was dropped. Uh, Shockingly, if you look at something like QBR from ESPN, which uses EPA per play, he was over 50 on that one, which means an above-average performance, even better than Taylor Heineke in this game. Uh, we had his EPA per play number ending up also being better than Heineke. So again, that just shows you the weirdness of what happened in this game. We had him at uh, positive 0.19 per play versus Heineke is about 0.1 per play. So almost twice as much on an EPA per play basis. But we have Heineke at a 66 grade versus a 52 for Russell. Okay, let's dig a little bit further into this. So the continuing problem here is these all-or-nothing big plays. And I'm just going to go back to what I highlighted earlier this year, which was the disconnect between the success rate for the dropback offense and the efficiency. They were getting away with it earlier this year, the fact that they were having low success rate, but they had all these big plays, but it's finally caught up with them. And it really is shocking what we've seen, the difference between first half of 2020 Russell Wilson when he was leading 
the MVP race by far. I believe he was, you know, plus money at one point to win or, 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 you know, minus, he was minus something in betting odds. So you would have had to, you know, bet 150 or 200 to win 100 on Russ midway through last season in the MVP race. He was doing that well. So we dig the numbers here, dig into the numbers. Um, it is only one of the eight games that Russell has started this year for the Seahawks. They've had an above average success rate dropping back the pass. Only one of eight. And if we continue to the trend from last season where only one of the last seven games to end last season, that was the case. So we're talking about two of the last 15 games. They've been an above average success rate drop back offense. So a healthy drop back offense has not been there at all. Uh, but if you look at the first half of last season or, or the first 10 games of last season, he was seven of 10 games. He had over, he had, he had an above average drop back offense and five of the first seven games of the season, he was in the 90th percentile. So he was way up there, not only above the 50th percentile, but in the 90th percentile, you know, you can read a ton of things about the two high coverages. Other things are going wrong, but the the third down success rate has really, really been an issue. 30 only completing 38% of his passes on third down this year, which is the lowest mark if that continues out for the rest of the season since 2004 for, I believe, Mark Brunel. Um, but again, let's focus on the Seahawks rushing attack because that's something that probably went under the radar, especially in a team that is trying somewhat to run the ball at least. Now, they did drop back to pass 78% of the time, which was 7.7% above expectation. So maybe there would be rumblings about, ah, oh, we didn't try running enough, we didn't try running enough. but you dig into the numbers here, they had a success rate running the ball of 20%, which is a fourth percentile type of outcome. And their EPA per run was negative 0.8 EPA per run, which is awful. It is, here it's three-tenths of a percentile. So it's under the one percentile type of outcome. It was really, really, really that bad running the ball for the Seahawks. So again, you know, Russ was around 50th percentile in his EPA production dropping back around 25th percentile in his success rate. So not great, but compared to the running offense, it was really, really bad. That was just not helping at all. An offense that was any, unable to sustain things that that happened there. Um, they also had a fumble. Uh, you know, that there was a fumble by uh, Alex Collins after a pass that they could have got something going there. So that there was that as part of it too. Now, the other big story from the night was DK Metcalf. Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on with him. Did not have a target until the third quarter. Finished with four targets, one catch, 13 yards. And that one catch came on the final two-minute drill-ish sort of play where they were down by eight at the end of the game. The defense was just laying off of him. So since Russ's return, DK has had three catches for 26 yards, four catches for 31 yards, and now one catch for 13 yards. He did not have a game under 50 yards earlier this season, and now he hasn't come close to hitting 50 any game recently. That connection is a little bit broken. We know about the chatter that we saw with him and Gino, and that kind of just peels into my next point, which is the buzz kind of started already, but it's going to get hot and heavy. I'm sure it's very, very hot and heavy in Seattle, where they know the season's over. We're not going to hear a lot about the Seahawks in national media because of the fact that this, the season's over, but it's going to be a lot of talk of what is the offseason going to look like, especially with the discontent that Russ showed last season. But 
what makes it difficult here in a way, which is strange to say, but what makes it difficult is the fact that I don't know what Russ's value is right now. If you think about what happened with Rodgers over the offseason, his discontent, even Matthew Stafford's discontent and the fact that he's traded, part of what lubricates these trades, which facilitates these trades, is that you can get a good enough return back that the fan base does not bring out the pitchforks. I don't know what you're getting back for Russ right now because of how he's fallen. Again, he's gone from first in his grading in 2019 to sixth last season. Now he's below average in his grading. He went from seventh in EPA per play in 2019 to 19th last season. And again, that's like really falling off a cliff in the second half of the season. Uh, And now he's in the bottom 10 this season. He's just bad, bad, bad. So if you look at the return for Matthew Stafford, who's around the same age, they got a couple of delayed first round picks, one for two years out and one for one for, you know, a year out and one for two years out. I don't know if the Seahawks are even getting that. They're around the same age, and obviously Russ is a Hall of Fame player. Matthew Stafford is not. Russ is a floor raiser, I think, on offense, more so than what Matthew Stafford is. But when you're making a trade for someone, and I think you can just get an idea by following the Twitter accounts of the the football media cool kids out there, the FMCK, you know, they love Stafford vis-a-vis Russ, and I think that's probably the case for a lot of coaches and front office personnel out there is they watch these Matthew Stafford highlights. It, it gets them worked up. It gets them, you know, it gets a little hot and bothered watching that. Whereas you watch Russ and you're not designing and diagramming these great plays that he's going to execute to perfection and make you look brilliant and take the offense to the next level and you're not going to fix him or whatever you're thinking about or or really you know enhance those abilities that he has you just turn him out there and he does his thing he makes great extremely accurate passes down the field and he scrambles around and figures things out that may not be that attractive as attractive to other teams which sounds crazy i know because he was considered really the second best quarterback in the NFL easily just a season ago And now that is somewhat in doubt. So the trade compensation might end up being an impediment to this. The potential trade compensation might end up being an impediment to this. When a lot of teams are not fully satisfied with who they have at quarterback, but they may not be willing to completely mortgage the future for Russell Wilson when he's playing like a bottom half quarterback for the last, you know, if it continues through the rest of the season, it'll be for more, it'll be for a year and a half that that's been happening. And that makes things difficult. All right, let's get to Washington real fast before I turn off to the to the next game. I know I've been yapping about this one for a while now, but I'd like to go a little bit more in-depth into the Island games. Um, so still in the mix, the the football team, five and six. There are four teams that are five and six. Now, I would say there's kind of a couple of contenders and a couple of pretenders, and I put the football team as being a little bit in between contender and pretender because the four teams are the Vikings, the Saints, the Falcons, and the old football team. Falcons are a total pretender, so we can kind of kick them out of the boat. Minnesota and New Orleans, I think, are contenders. Now, the whole Taysom Hill thing, we'll see how that plays out with the Saints, but I think they still have a solid defense, still have a solid core team. So those would be the top two teams, I think, that will likely emerge. One of those will likely emerge for that seventh playoff spot uh, as long as San Francisco and others don't completely fall off there. 
but Washington has a chance. Uh, and I think that another notable thing for here that I'll mention that isn't a football, football, quote unquote, real football thing, but a fantasy football thing. Uh, Antonio Gibson, the usage is pretty crazy. 29 carries, 111 yards, but also seven receptions, which is the most of his career. He had four a couple of times, four receptions in 2020 when he was being used more in that role. But he had no more than three this season. So to jump all the way up to seven was interesting. And, you know, we'll see if that continues going forward. But um, I can't get too excited about the football team yet because I just feel like their, their ceiling is there. And I think in this sort of game, we still did see them struggle, although not as much as what the numbers say because they, you know, they almost scored the touchdown with Logan Thomas there. And they were a little bit more successful moving the ball, much more successful moving the ball than the Seahawks in this game. All right, let's get into Island game number two. But before we do that quickly, I just want to give a little shout out to the newest uh, cyber, the newest codes we have going on here. Cyber 40, Cyber 40, Cyber 40, PFF, 40% off. Get in, get in on this, please, uh, for everything that we're that we're seeing here. and. Let's get into the game here for Sunday night. The Browns at the Baltimore Ravens, which is a very interesting situation there. They're going to go at Ravens. The Browns are going to go at Ravens by at home versus the Ravens. Baltimore is a three-point favorite. Baltimore wins 16 to 10. My adjusted score is 20 to 12 Baltimore. So a little bit further out, a little bit out there. So I think the headline is going to be Stefanski regressing. I've seen that out there, people getting on the play calling and just the fact that he was coach of the year last year and now they're not doing so well. My alternative headline is the TOCs continue their streak of never calling a bad game. Now, the TOCs, of course, are the Twitter offensive coordinators out there who, you know, amazingly, they've never called a bad game in their entire lives. They've always been correct about everything. So let's talk about Stefanski first. Got a couple of rants here. First, uh, some of the context here. I'm going to throw out some excuses. I'm going to be I'm going to be an apologist here. And, you know, Baker had that weird fumble on the screen pass that he was trying to throw out there. Jarvis Landry had uh, a fumble. So there were a couple of plays on that. Maybe you could say that was a really bad play call for Jarvis Landry where he they pitched it back to him and then he ran around like he was going to throw it and then he ended up getting hit. But the reality is Jarvis has got to be smarter than that on that play. And they're trying to get a spark, which I think if you saw the offense, you really can't, you really can't critique someone too much for trying to get a spark out of an offense that was pretty moribund the entire game. So I'm not sure how you coach like tremendous fuck-ups out of your players. Like you can coach them to try to be in the right place at the right time, which has also been an issue for the Browns. So maybe you can pin that on Stefanski a little bit more. But you got some players who just made some bad, bad plays in this game, and it's tricky to try to think about that. Um, two most impactful plays of the game, really, uh, other than all of these Lamar Jackson interceptions, were those two plays. The, the fumble by Baker Mayfield when he was setting up trying to throw the screen pass and the Jarvis Landry uh, fumble play cost the Browns more than nine points. But let's get into the play calling because that's the thing is they didn't run the ball enough is what we're talking about here. And if you want to look at it from a numbers-based perspective, you could say Chubb and Hunt, they ran the ball 15 times. They got combined 15 times. They had one combined yard before contact. That's it. 
The Ravens were all over this. They were blitzing constantly, and they were run blitzes to stop it. They were overwhelmed. So when you look at play-calling criticism generally, I define it as it can be true what they're saying when they're criticizing, but it's all hindsight bias, or it's mostly hindsight bias. When something is unsuccessful and you say, if X is unsuccessful, and you say, well, you should have done Y, that's probably true because it was, you already know that X was unsuccessful. So if you want to say, well, they should have ran the ball more because in this particular game, the Browns were more efficient running the ball than they were passing the ball. But the problem is you don't know going into it that, you're, that that's going to be the case. You don't know that when the defense is showing you looks they're going to hold down your running game. They're going to keep you to extremely low ceiling results running the ball. You don't know under those circumstances that Baker Mayfield and the passing offense is going to be as bad as it was. You're hoping that you're going to get more upside out of that because you're playing the odds, you're playing the percentages, you're playing what we know about football, and that is when the defense is completely giving you the pass, and they've shown in this game that they're able to shut down the run, you're not just going to accept that low ceiling run game and then, and then continue to ignore the pass and just hope that Lamar Jackson is going to throw four interceptions and that's how you're going to win the game. If your winning strategy is, hey, just continue to run the ball despite the looks they're showing you, have a, have a bad offense, but maybe not an awful offense like you did passing the ball, have a bad offense intercept Lamar Jackson four times, and then boom, get a few strategic completions from Baker Mayfield and you win the game. That's not how it works. That is a losing strategy. We can't have hindsight. We have to play based upon what we think is going to happen. We make decisions based upon what we think is going to happen, not looking back. And that's the main problem with a lot of the critiques, whether it's what play should have been called on fourth down, what play should have been called on a critical third down, whether or not a team should have run it more or not when they were unsuccessful passing the ball. Sure, if you know after the fact, then go ahead. Get in your time machine, TOCs. Get in your time machine, go back there, and, and fix everything that way. We don't have time machines when you're the offensive coordinator. You have to make the best call at that time based upon what you know at that time. And I think Stefanski, for the most part, not always. I'll disagree with him sometimes. For the most part, he is doing that. Okay, so the number of the game for this one, again, I mentioned this in my rant, but it's one, and that's the total yards before contact for Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb on 15 total carries. The Browns' success rate running the ball was at a 23rd percentile. Uh, they were only 2% passing over expectation. They didn't just turn the ball over to the pass. They weren't under expectation. They weren't run heavy like they always are, but they didn't just turn the ball over. And the fact that they only ran for, you know, they only ran 59 total plays, which I think skewed the perception on the fact that they didn't run enough. Uh, you know, 16 yards on eight carries for Chubb, 20 yards on seven carries for Kareem Hunt. It's, it's just it was tough sledding all around. Uh, but, but the passing offense was worse. That 25th percentile success rate, so not too bad there, but only an eighth percentile in their efficiency for Baker Mayfield. Bad, bad game for Mayfield. 
So Jackson benefited. I think I feel like in this game, Lamar Jackson benefited the narrative coming at us because Mayfield looked so bad. And of course, they ended up winning the game. I mean, he did show something. He showed big plays. He showed doing things with his legs. He showed the fact that he has that superstar talent. So I think that also saves him in this game where ultimately he had 18 and a half, 19 expected points lost from interceptions, which is just an enormous, enormous loss. He only had a 43 grade in this game because we judge those very harshly. And he was losing 3.3 EPA per play, which was about as bad as Mayfield in this game. Um, but one thing I'll, I'll critique Stefanski on, this has happened a few times this season, is I think he had a bad punt near the end of the game. And I know that there's a little bit of a oxymoron here when it comes to when you should punt in these situations because, okay, let me just break down the situation first. So it was fourth and five. Cleveland was down by three points. There was six and a half minutes left in the game. They run their own 35-yard line. I don't expect teams to go for it in this circumstance. Both offenses are struggling, down by three points. You get the ball back, you can score, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but this was a strong go-for-it situation. And the reasoning is, and you could say he had no faith in his offense, and that's why he didn't want to do it. That's fine. But if you have no faith in your offense, what you're also doing by punting it away is you're only giving yourself one, realistically, one more chance to score. So you're saying we have to score on the next one. So you are putting, in a way, more pressure on your offense in the best case scenario. The best case scenario is you get a stop, you give up zero points, you get the ball back. You really just have one drive still with six and a half minutes left in the game. They're probably going to take a couple minutes off the clock at least. You're going to be left with, let's say, four, three minutes, and you're going to need to score on that drive. You're not going to have multiple opportunities. This is giving your offense a chance to have multiple opportunities. Your offense that's struggling a chance to have multiple opportunities. This is giving your offense four yard, four downs to complete to convert a drive versus three downs and kicking away. It's giving them more room to be successful and to matriculate the ball down the field. Now, the numbers do back this up. This was a about a 3.3% gain by win probability if they would have gone for it here. And it's just about giving yourself like a realistic chance to win. So the thing is, if you succeed in this situation, this fourth and five, your, your win probability down by three beyond your own third, beyond your own 40 yard line somewhere, your win probability is about 40%. Now it's lower because you're going to give the ball back. And guess what? The Ravens, despite the fact that they've struggled, there's a lot of interceptions. They can still move the ball down the field, as we saw on the next drive. Whereas if you punt, you're locked in at 21%. Yeah, if you fail, you go down to 13%. So you're in a worse situation. But that huge jump up to 39% is what's really, really key here. I just don't think people realize punting the ball away in that circumstance where you're likely only to get the ball back one time for the rest of the game, punting it to what is a good offense, who has struggled that game, but what is a good offense, puts you in a, in a low probability situation for winning the game. You're locking in a low probability situation for winning the game rather than giving yourself a chance. And, you know, even if you don't convert, if you can stop them and hold them to a field goal, it's going to be a short drive, too, because they have the ball on your side of the field. If you hold them to a field goal, you still get the ball back and have a chance to potentially win the game and only be down by six. So anyway, I thought this was a bad decision. I think Stefanski may have been scared off by the troubles that the Browns offense was having. But again, 
those troubles should make you want to give them more chances. Give your offense even more room to work by giving them that fourth down, by giving them multiple chances to potentially score, because even if you get stopped on that drive, there's still enough time to potentially get another drive in the game if you continue that one. Give yourself maybe two drives to score. Um, and he did not do that in this game. This is I've seen this a couple of times from Stefanski. Not a huge problem, something he would have gotten killed for if they went for it and didn't make it and then lost the game, but something that they really should have done. And these are the situations that coaches are still making mistakes. Even good coaches like Stefanski are the fourth and short, fourth and mediums on their own side of the field, especially near the end of the game where the, the possession, the number of possession dynamic flips dramatically. You flip it from potentially having two possessions to their one possession to them more likely having two possessions to your one possession by punting it in that circumstance. Okay, before we get on to the next game, let's hit our first old sponsor of the game. That's Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com. Use promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. It's launching its new products. The ultra new, ultra premium body wash, two-in-one shampoo and conditioner, performance package 4.0, the signature lawnmower 4.0, electric trimmer, advanced skin-safe technology. It's waterproof. You got your shampoo and conditioner, you got your waterproof trimmer, you got everything going on here. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift at all. Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, 20% off and free shipping at promo code and at using promo code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping using code PFF. And let's talk DraftKings, our friend of DraftKings too, football fans. I'm sure we loved an action-packed, high-scoring NFL game. With the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you'll be a winner with one single point is scored. New customers who bet $1 on any team to score can win $100 in free bets. It's that simple. If the sportsbook isn't available in your state, you can still get in on the NFL action with all of their great daily fantasy contests. New customers get a free shot at millions in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet $1 on any team to score one point and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only, minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem called 1-800-GAMBLER. All righty, we got past the island game, so now let's let's start cranking on the rest of these here. First game that I'm going to hit is I'm not going in chronological order here or early late slate. I'm just going to fire into it. Games I think that are interesting is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Indianapolis Colts. Tampa Bay was a three point favorite, so a decent favorite on the road. They win by seven points, thirty eight to thirty one. My adjusted score is 34 to 28. So six points versus seven points. Pretty close, though, to what the actual score is. The headline for this game you're going to hear coming out of it is the Colts needed to lean more on the running game. Very similar to the Browns headline. Everything that I ranted about, Ree Stefanski and the TOCs, you can, you can just apply it to this game also. The alternative headline I have here is drops and ineffective runs led to a slow offense early. And if you look at the numbers for the Colts, yeah, they were 
11% over expectation with their passing. Total 73%. Uh, while the most pass-happy team in the league to this point, the Bucks were at 50, 57% pass rate, which was right even with their expectation. Now, there's you know, only 74 yards we saw in this game for, quote-unquote, I'm putting quotes here, MVP candidate, MVP candidate, uh, Jonathan Taylor, although he did have one rushing touchdown. And if you think about it, the first two plays of the game, and this is when you, Frank Reich was asked about this, he said that not only did he not regret running more, he wished he would have run it less at the beginning of this game. And they really killed their first couple of drives by running the ball. First two plays of the game were running plays. Taylor only had two yards, two total yards rushing on the first four carries of the game. That's all he had in the first quarter. He killed, not he, I shouldn't blame it on him, but those runs were very detrimental to the scoring there for the Colts. And then they came back and they ripped off a bunch of big plays in the passing offense after that. And that's what got them this lead. Now, could they have just leaned on Taylor from then on out and secured the victory, which did not come? I mean, it's a possibility, I guess. But I don't know if it's something you could have guaranteed. Things were obviously working well as far as passing the ball was concerned. So I don't blame them significantly for the fact that that's what ended up happening. Now, they were more successful in the running game than the Browns were. It wasn't a total destruction. Taylor had a good last drive near the end of the game after that offense that scored 21 points throwing the ball in the second quarter went cold in the third quarter. But if you think about in the third quarter of this game, what was their pass-to-run ratio when when it went cold? Uh, 17 passing plays versus... Oh, yeah, not too many running plays in this game. So I guess that was really it. It was the third quarter when things went cold, that they did not have a rushing attempt. And that's what everyone is really pointing to here. Uh, Wentz had 92-yard passing, and he also had an interception, although we did not grade that as a turnover-worthy play. So I think there was some poor luck in that one, too. And I thought it was good for Wentz that he had some big plays in this game. That's something that's been very on or off for him, something they're going to need going forward. And then in contrast to what Jonathan Taylor did, Leonard Fournette had 131 yards, total yards, four touchdowns, 90th percentile rushing success and efficiency for the Bucs. So, you know, they lean more into the run than they normally do because they were doing extremely well. The Colts were playing this bend but don't break defense and were really allowing too much bending here. Uh, The three biggest plays of the game also were a little bit on the flukier side. Uh, It was a fumble for Wentz. Now it was on a drop back, so... Held the ball too long, which Wentz is going to do sometimes. That was negative 6.7 EPA, so that was a big one. Um, and Zach Pascal also fumbled, which is a 5.4 EPA loss. And then there was a muffed punt, which is a 5.2 EPA loss. Now, Godwin also fumbled for the Bucks, but it was a little bit less impactful because it started on third down. So it was in a worse situation for, for them. And the number of the game, I'm going to say three, which is the number of big-time throws for Wentz. He had that many combined over his last four games. He had a total of three big-time throws over the last four games, and he had three in this particular game. And especially if anyone saw the long touchdown to Ashton Doolin, he basically placed it in his hands 60 yards down the field. Excellent, excellent, excellent throw there. And if they can get more of that going, 
you know, I still think the Colts are very, very dangerous. Can they catch the Titans? I'm not sure. I think they're three games down. They need to catch them three games down with now five, six games to go. A little bit difficult because of the fact they don't have that, that tiebreaker. Uh, both quarterbacks graded okay in the 70s. Uh, 9.8 a dot for Wentz and only 6.1 for Brady. So again, the Bucks offense really shifted things around to match what the defense's bend but don't break Colts defense was showing them. They ran it a ton. They ran it successfully. They brought down the A dot. They brought down the depth of target, which for Brady, it's not hugely huge this season. It's a little bit, a little bit lower this season than it was last season. But it isn't a, he isn't a short A dot passer. He isn't a dink and dunker for this game. Uh, both had roughly similar EPA per play. And again, it wasn't you know a bad performance by Wentz that led this game. Both offenses were effective. It was more the defense could not stop the Bucks from running. That was really the problem. Uh, what's interesting in this game, though, again, because it's been to break off defense for the Colts, there's only combined 40 receiving yards for Evans and Godwin in this game. Seven catches on 10 targets. So that was a pretty interesting way that that ended up playing out. But both of these teams, I think, played okay enough to be secure in what they're going to do going forward. The Colts, maybe a little bit too late of a run here. But if they can sneak into the playoffs, they're going to be a very difficult out for, uh, for other teams this season. Okay. Big, big game, which was not a great game, but a, a big game was the Rams at the Packers. The Rams close as a two-point favorite. They win 30, no, not they win, excuse me. The Packers win 36 to 28. So that's an eight-point victory. The number is closer, which I'm a little bit surprised by. It's 29-25 Green Bay, only four points. It's a little bit strange. And the headline on this one is going to be Rams in disarray. My alternative headline is going to be they are who we thought they were for the Rams. Let's not get crazy now and go too far into the fact that they're broken. But at the same time, this is what you should have expected from Matthew Stafford and from this team. So they had similar success rates, which kind of explains why the two teams had similar offensive success rates, which explains why the adjusted score is a little bit more narrow than the actual score in this game. They're both a little bit under league average there. But the big differences were the turnovers that the Rams had. And the Rams were just awful on third down. And that comes to my number of the game, which is 13. And that uh, that's equals the expected points lost by the Rams on Stafford turnovers. So that's a lot. Um, Rodgers was pretty good in this game. And I think Rodgers is making a sneaky play for MVP, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, the efficiency metrics weren't that good. 0.12 EPA per play, which is maybe a 60th percentile type of outcome. But he had an 86 grade. He's moving up. That He's been lower on his grading this season than he has on his EPA per play. And he just made no mistakes. He only took one sack, one turnover-worthy play that did not end up translating into an interception, luckily for him. Um, and even that one was a potential interception on a third and 12 where he chucked it 40 yards downfield. And the safety came over and tried to make a play. So even if that would have been an interception, that's a good risk-reward decision, or not a bad risk-reward decision anyway, on third and 12 to take a shot down the field. And if you get intercepted, it's a lower uh, expected points loss in that situation. So as much as it pains me, got to give credit to Aaron Rodgers here. He's balling. He's third in EPA per play this season. He's eighth in grading. And again, that grading is on the rise and it's rising quickly. I think Rodgers and Brady are really the old guard here, are really the two guys who have the best chance and should be considered 
in the MVP conversation this year. Now, Brady is seventh in EPA per play versus third for Rodgers, but he's first in grading versus eighth for Rodgers. And I do think there is a potential for there to be some bias against Rodgers after his whole, you know, I'm immunized thing and the COVID thing, but not really. I mean, sports writers, football people have a very short memory. If Rodgers is balling out to end the season, we're going to have forgotten all about all that sort of stuff. I don't think there's any bias. I've heard some people posit that as a theory that it'd be biased. There may be a little bit of bias against him because he won last season. So back to back versus Tom Brady, who hasn't won since way back in 2017. Yeah, you know, four years ago. Uh, so there may be some, some bias in that situation. And what I think it's going to come down to, I think there could be a special circumstance this year where Kyler Murray, despite the fact that he's missed time, might still be in the conversation. People normally, if, you, if, they, if someone misses three, four games, normally they're out, but we have a little bit longer season now, everything else. I think Murray could still be in the mix. And I think the MVP... Despite the fact that Josh Allen's odds are so high, I've, I've never understood that. They're, they're hedging against an exposure or something, all these different books with Josh Allen. I think to me, whichever team gets the number one seed in the NFC and gets a bye, whether it be the Bucks, the Cardinals, or the Packers, whichever team does that, that quarterback is in the driver's seat to win the MVP. So the Packers are a half game behind the Cardinals right now. They have the tiebreaker. They have a materially easier schedule. So I think the Packers and Aaron Rodgers has a good shot at repeating here as as the MVP. Now, let me talk about a epic rant that from a friend of the pod and PFF guy, PFF underscore Eric, Eric Eager. He had an epic rant on his podcast, the PFF forecast that he does with George Shahuri there about what he called ramsplaining, which I really enjoyed that one. And his point was that in the offseason and then even with this in-season Von Miller trade, people were loath to criticize them, especially when things are going well. He said, hey, you know, they figured out you, the, the old rules don't apply. We overvalue draft picks. You want players. You don't want picks. Why? Ford picks who just may become players when you can have players and mortgaging the future and going all in and doing it again and building the blah and everything else that's gone on that we have to deal with our when our nerds are like, we love picks, we love picks. Everyone's going to come after us on, on those uh, on that side and point to the results here. So while I agree with everything from a macro standpoint, I've said I thought the Von Miller trade in particular was just god awful because it's not even a long term deal. Like maybe you can justify trading away future assets for guys you're going to have for four or five seasons. You're going to re-sign to big contracts. They're going to be foundational pieces of your pie going forward. But one player away deals are almost always mistakes. And this was clearly a Von Miller one player away, giving away multiple day two picks for half a season of an injured, of a hampered 30-year-old. Um. So I agree with all of that. But at the same time, as part of his rant, Eric mentioned that he may have thrown it out there that the Rams are not good. The Rams are good. Okay, I'm going to put that. I'm taking a different slant on that one. And that may be the thing I'm going to push in. Now, maybe this is my gross contrarianism here. But if you look at this, this game in particular, now I mentioned that they were really only, according to my adjusted number, four points worse than the Packers. 
they averaged more yards per play, 5.8 to 5.1 in this game. Um, seven net yards per pass attempt to only 6.7. So Stafford was better there. Now, the problem was the, the turnovers I mentioned earlier, hugely, hugely negative. And they also were poor on late downs on third and fourth down, negative 10 EPA on those downs. Two things that are a little bit fluky. They're four of 13 on third down, 0 for 1 on fourth down, which is a, which is a fourth of one run that they got stuffed on. So let's think about these two these major negatives that are piling up on the Rams recently. Again, the fundamental offense isn't as broken as these major negatives that were probably unsustainably low before, which are now definitely unsustainably high these last three weeks. So we're talking about everything the last three weeks versus the first eight weeks of the season that they've had, the first eight games versus the last three games. Stafford has negative 27 uh, so he's lost 27 expected points on interceptions the last three weeks, almost 10 a week, versus losing 11 the first eight weeks, only 11 the first eight weeks. He has lost 19 expected points on sacks and strip sacks the last three weeks versus only 14 in the first eight weeks. And late downs we're talking about here. So third and fourth down EPA for the Rams as a team Negative 30 expected points on those third and fourth downs the last three weeks. Positive five the first eight weeks. These are some of the least stable metrics out there. And the Rams have flown from, from good to bad. They've gone way past just regression. They've flown over to the other side of things. So that's been the main factor. The 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 inherent efficiency of the offense, I think, is still okay. Robert Woods, losing Robert Woods is a problem, but Van Jefferson's playing well enough. Odell Beckham is going to fill a role there, a useful role there. They still have Cooper Cup. No one's injured there. I think they're fragile in that way if they have another injury for some, a couple of injury-prone guys when it comes to Beckham and when it comes to Cup. But with those guys healthy, I'm buying this team going forward. I think they're still... Maybe not a top three team or something like that, but I think they're still in the five, six type of range. I think they're as good as a lot of teams that people may be extremely high on at this point. And I'm not selling the Rams right now. I'm buying the Rams right now going forward because those big mistakes are going to get fixed. And this offense and this defense are fundamentally good enough to get things done going forward. Oh. My nemesis. Let's talk about my nemesis, the New England Patriots. So the Tennessee Titans at the New England Patriots, it closed at New England seven and a half points, which was interesting because it went to seven and then it moved slightly in some places down towards the Titans, but then the A.J. Brown news winded out to seven and a half. Uh, New England wins the game 36 to 13, a blowout, 23-point victory. Now, the adjusted score. There are no moral victories here, but the adjusted score, 25 to 18, only a seven-point difference. Now, I know you guys probably think, because I am a noted Pats hater, uh, biased against the Pats, that I'm in here, you know, changing around the formulas in order to figure out any way I can to hold down their scores. But honestly, that's just what it came out to. Seven-point differential versus a 23-point differential. And this was a huge loser, though, because I had the Titans plus seven as a best bet last week before we knew A.J. Brown. 
I got a little okie doked on the AJ Brown news because I thought when I saw a couple of books move off of plus seven down to plus six and a half, that that meant that there was positive news in the atmosphere out there on AJ Brown, but it ended up being the opposite. He did not play. Uh, I don't know if it would have changed my recommendation there, but I would have had to make probably an ad hoc adjustment to take to take him out, and that was not being done strongly enough going into this. But I'm not taking any sort of like, oh, my adjusted score said it was a seven-point victory, and I had it plus seven, so therefore it was a push. No, no, this is a loss. This is a huge loss. So we're not taking any process Ws on this one. We're not racking up moral victories on this one. We're not the, we're not the lions of the betting world. Uh, so the headline on this one is, Patriots are really, really, really for real. And my alternative headline would be, fine, they're for real, but I don't have to like it. And I can still hate. I can still give you context that is legitimate, objective numbers and context. I can't help it if my numbers continue to say that they are an overvalued team that hasn't been as good as their point differential and their record. Sometimes teams will continue to be as good Sometimes they won't, but the way that doing this analysis benefits you is not that you're right every single time, but is that you're right more often than you are wrong. And the Patriots could end up being a circumstance where we are wrong that doesn't invalidate what's going on here. So let's think about this. You're going to hear a lot about the Patriots leading the NFL in point differential. So first, let's just say right off the bat, even not forgetting about my adjusted scores, yeah, on an absolute basis, they're, they're 146 more points than their opponents. But the Bills are 144, and the Bills have played one less game. So even right off of the bat, if you just take the average point differential, the actual point differential in the games, the Patriots are 11.2 points per game, and the Bills are 13.1 points per game. So even doing something as simple as dividing the point differential by the number of games played, which makes a lot of sense, uh, puts the Bills still ahead in that category. So again, even that stat in and of itself that you're going to hear is a little bit deceptive. Now, the adjusted score differentials that I have, so doing the same thing, looking back at all my adjusted scores for this season and then doing it on a per-game basis, the Pats are at 2.9 per game versus the Bills at 11.5. So a massive difference. The Bills are number one in, in that category. The Pats are number 10. Now, they've gotten better the second half of the season. And they had one really bad game earlier this season. Um, so for that reason, maybe 10th is too low. Maybe they're more like 5th. But I think somewhere in that 5 to 8 range is fair to me. I don't think they're in the top 5, solidly in the top 5 for teams this year. Again, could be wrong. They could continue to own me, but I'm sticking with it. So if you look at the success rates for these two teams, when we talk about the Titans and the Patriots, this explains why my adjusted scores are fairly narrow. It wasn't that different. 40% for the Titans versus 43% for the Patriots. But there were turnovers and big plays continued to kill the Titans and help the Patriots. Um, it's not Tannehill all the time. This time, or it had been Tannehill with all of his turnovers last week. This time it was two fumbles, one by Dontrell Hilliard, one by Devontae Foreman. Uh, plus there was a Tannehill INT on fourth and goal from the two-yard line. Uh, and this is also a, a drive where they started first down and goal from the five, and they couldn't convert. They got zero points on that. Uh, they also missed a 44-yard field goal, which is very makeable. So they lost another six, seven, eight points in special teams when you look at the punting and everything else there. So they had all these little things 
that accumulated that may not have been that noticeable in a game where optically on the scoreboard they weren't doing so hot, but you know, that was happening. And if you want to split it up, you know, midway through the third quarter, they were only down by six points. They were averaging more points, uh, yards per play. And this is after missing makeable field goals and so on forth and so on. This could have been a tie-ish sort of game three quarters of the way through. And then, you know, the wheels did fall off in the fourth quarter. So the Titans ran the ball extremely well in this game. That was something somewhat unsustainable. They had a 97th percentile in their efficiency on the ground. Their success rate was much lower, but they had these huge, huge runs, which is not necessarily something you can count on, but I think it was good for the Titans generally to say, we got that running game going without Derrick Henry because it had been suffering in recent weeks. Hilliard and Foreman showed pop in the running game, although the fumbles were massively negative. They showed pop in the running game that you were clearly not getting with the 36, 35, 36-year-old Adrian Peterson. So the number of the game is minus 25, and that is the percent under expectation for the Titans, their pass rate under expectation. They trailed a ton in this game, and they still only dropped back to pass 44% of the time. They really leaned into that, which helped keep them close. You know, it was a superficially strong stat line for uh, Mac Jones, and I think that's something that we're going to hear a lot. You know, I'm not going to be a Mac Jones hater like some out there who say Trevor Lawrence would be better in if he was in the same situation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Mac Jones has played well, but we have to put into context his stats. 72% completion percentage. Let's talk about the traditional stats here that you'll hear a lot. 310 yards, 9.7 yards per attempt, which is very strong. Two touchdowns. Now, a lot of these big plays, though, he was just doing the old Patriots, quote unquote, doing his job. And he wasn't really doing anything special on this. He had a 0.2 EPA per play, which is strong, but he only had a 52 grade. And that, the grade really reflects the fact that he didn't do anything special. He didn't have any big time throws. He only had a 20% pressure rate. They used play action on 70% of run friendly downs. So basically anything but third and long. Anytime they pass on anything but third and long, they're using play action 70% of the time. He had one really, really bad turnover-worthy play, but luckily for him, it was a linebacker, B.J. Bellow, who hands of brick, who could not catch it. There's some potential for it being a pick six. I don't know. Bellow probably would have been caught from behind, but it was definitely a play where he could have intercepted it, and you know, John o. Smith probably would have caught him 15, 20 yards down the field, but there's some possibility if he could get a couple of blocks and he could have taken it all the way back to the house. It was just a bad decision. I mean, Johnny Smith was bracketed by a couple of different defenders and it seemed like Mac didn't recognize that. So that's some of the downside for negatives that happened into his play that weren't part of it. And then the positives, you know, the big plays are a lot of great efforts by Kendrick Bourne here. He had a play, of course, where he scored a long touchdown where he took a pretty simple crosser and then you know, tiptoed down the sideline and took it all the way in for a long score. He had a great catch in the first drive where a defender's arm was right there. I think it may have been Kevin Byer was right there with him and he still caught it um, despite the fact that there was a lot of impediment to it. And then the Patriots were making big conversions on screen passes and swing passes and other plays like that. Uh, 55% of their passing yards were, were accumulated after the catch. So, Again, it was a was a scheme-based sort of thing, not necessarily Mac Jones playing extremely well. And the Titans, like I mentioned before, they have enough of a lead now over the Colts with this Colts loss was huge, huge for them. 
because now they're eight and four versus six and six in the Colts. So they're two games ahead in the standings and they have the tiebreaker. So they're essentially three games ahead with five games to go for these teams. Three games ahead, five games to go. So you can do the math on that. Even if the Colts win every game, the Colts go five and oh, the Titans would need to go two and three. So Colts probably not going five and zero, right? But even if they go four and one, the Colts then Tennessee only needs to win, you know, one game, the two games to to secure the division going forward. And look at their schedule. Two wins should get them to division, no matter what. They might only need one, but two wins should definitely get them the division. They're playing the Jaguars next week. The Steelers, Big Ben is already completely dusted. 49ers, which could be a little tough. Uh, the Dolphins, that could be a little tough. And then the Texans after that. So they have the Jaguars and the Texans as two of their five remaining games where they really only need two wins, most likely to secure the division. So despite the struggles, get healthy, get ready for the playoffs is what I would say for the Tennessee Titans. Okay, let's go um, Steelers, the aforementioned Steelers versus the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals were three and a half point favorites. That's a big half point there at home. The Bengals win 41 to 10, and my adjusted score is 32 to 4. So that's a big adjusted score differential. This is not one of these games like we saw the Titans of the Patriots where it was much more narrow. In fact, it went from a 31 point difference to a 28 point difference. So pretty close. So I think we can I think we can fork the Steelers at this point. What do you guys think? I don't know. It's like they have some pieces, unfortunately, but their defense wasn't even doing anything here. They're five and five and one. They have a negative 43 point differential this season. Uh, they have a tough schedule coming up. They've lost a couple of games in a row. I don't know. It's just going to be really tough for them. So I think we can fork them. That's the headline and sounds good to me. So Big Ben is disintegrating before our very eyes. He's now dead last. And that's my number of the game. 34, which is his ranking in PFF grade, passing, I mean, uh, offensive grade this season amongst quarterbacks. He's 24th in efficiency. He's just near the bottom in both categories. And it was a great offensive game for the Bengals. But it's, again, this, like, low passing offense. They haven't had much of a passing offense the last couple of weeks. They've been efficient running the ball. They ran the ball 57% of the time here. They were 78th percentile in their running efficiency. Uh, Mixon, 28 carries, 134 yards. Huge game for him. And a little bit weird here. He had four receptions for negative two yards. So I'd have to watch, watch to see exactly how that happened. Now, Burrow had a great grade. So I think Burrow, people are talking about, oh, Burrow, Burrow. I've heard some buzz about him. Still, though, he, he only threw it for like 200 yards. 92 grade, though. You know, good, not great EPA at 0.16 per play, but only 27 dropbacks. And, you know, T. Higgins is the guy who stepped up here, and that's going to be big for them since Jamar Chase, they were probably overly reliant on him. Chase has been struggling, at least in terms of his numbers that he's been putting up. Six catches for 114 yards for Higgins. And again, in the context of how low this passing game was, that equals out to 60% of the receiving yards in this game. T. Higgins, that's a big piece for them going forward. Okay, uh, Eagles at... New York Giants, the Eagles close as a four-point favorite. I think that went up from two and a half or something like that. But anyway, four-point favorite at the New York Giants. 
it ends up 13-7 Giants, and my adjusted score is more like an 18-18 tie. So not Philly winning or definitely not covering by the adjusted score, but close. So the headline here is the shortest trip ever for the Jalen Hurts bandwagon, a one-week trip. It was like that Simpsons meme where the grandpa comes in, puts down his coat, and then does a circle, comes back, and goes out. That was the Jalen Hurts bandwagon when we had Ian Rappaport putting out stories about how if he continues to play this way, he could be the starting quarterback. We had a bunch of people jumping on the bandwagon, which, of course, I am still driving. That is my alternative headline. I'm still driving this bandwagon. Let's not get too crazy what's going on here. Uh, But you knew this was going to happen after a week of hype. This is his worst game of the season. 56.3 grade, negative 0.3 EPA per play, despite the fact that he was accumulating good efficiency on the ground. 4.3 yards per attempt, and he was really bad on late downs. 1.3, negative 1.3 EPA per third or fourth down. Three times worse than any other game this season. But the positives here, this is what I'm going to focus on again with Hurts because I'm sticking with him on this one. You know, the killer ground game continues, and he is a huge, huge part of that. 77 yards for Hurts, which is more than anyone else. Yeah, he did that on two scrambles and six design runs. So again, he continues to be involved in the design runs. 64 yards each for Scott and Sanders, and he keeps on just anyone can be efficient, I think, with Jalen Hurts as your quarterback in this offensive line for the Eagles. 208 rushing yards. Um, and they only had one um, missed tackle forced. If you look at the missed tackles forced for Scott and Sanders, they only had one on 24 carries, yet they were still able to be so successful running the ball. And that just shows you how wide open things are when Hurts is part of that running game. So excluding the fumble, and they did have a bad fumble from Boston Scott, 99th percentile success rate and efficiency for the running game. Really, really good again. 69, very nice, 69% success rate. So in passing, you know, they were, they had 55% pass rate, which is higher than what they've done recently, but it was still 14% under expectation. So I know some people were, were wanting them to, pass, to run it even more. They Maybe they could have, but, you know, the fumble killed the drive and some other things killed some drives here. So the number of the game, we talk, again, talking about killed drives, this is important context where I may be a little biased towards the Eagles and my man Jalen Hurts, but I'm going to continue to lean into that. Five is the number of the game. So five of the 10 Eagles drives, Five of the 10 Eagles drives ended on the Giants' side of the field, but they got zero points on those drives. Now, they had another drive where they scored a touchdown. So excluding that one, that one also. So six of the 10 drives went, went on to the Giants' side of the field. Only one of them ended up scoring any points. So let's talk about those five drives. What happened? Um, they had a 10-play, 54-yard drive, which ended up as, a, as an interception. It's a third and five play where it was uh, the Giants intercepted at their own five-yard line. It was kind of a weird play. It was a play to Quez Watkins. He's coming over the middle. We did not credit Jalen Hurts with a turnover-worthy play because either Watkins got stuck coming out of his break or he was actually held. It looked more like he was held. So he was held and he was in his position and then it was intercepted there. So again, kind of unlucky play there. The Eagles had a 15-play, 92-yard drive. That would have been right near the end of the end of the half. And then on second and goal, they had a pass to Greg Ward, which was dropped. Would have been a little bit of a difficult catch, but it was a drop, which would have been a touchdown. And then on third and goal, Hurts lost his mind and was flailing around going 
going over to the side and decided to chuck it up at the somewhat last second to see if he could get a touchdown, and then it was intercepted. So again, zero points there. They go all the way down to the one-yard line from their own seven-yard line, and that's what they get. Another drive, five plays, 35 yards, that ended in a failed fourth and two at the Giants' 40, so they didn't convert the fourth and two. Another drive, Boston Scott fumbles it right over midfield on the 49-yard line on first down on a four-yard carry, then Scott gets hit and he fumbles it. So killed that drive. And then lastly, the last drive of the game where they could have tied the score or won the game because they were down by six. They could have won the game with this drive. Eight plays, 32 yards. They ended up getting stalled out on the Eagle, on the Giants, I think it was the 25-yard line. But the thing is, on a last play of the game, went through Rager's hands. They would have either had the ball at the one-yard line, first and goal from the one, or he would have scored. And a few plays before that, when they were a bit further out, I think it was 30-something yards out, another ball went through Rager's hands on a deep pass. So there were multiple draws by Jalen Rager that would have won the game there. So all those different drives, they came away with nothing. They were awful on third and fourth down. They were one of the worst performances you could have there, negative 20 EPA there. So hopefully that will also turn around. It's another one of those metrics that really just kills their statistics, but it is variable on a week-to-week basis. One other thing I want to complain about here from a strategy perspective, and you know, Sirianni, he's another guy where the, the TOCs, the Twitter offensive coordinators have been all over him early in the season when things weren't going well. They'll probably be all over him again because you know, whenever the results are bad, then they got to blame somebody. But one thing that I can point to is a clearly a mistake is near the end of the game, uh, they did the spike and regroup rather than just go on first down when everyone is is lined up. You should be ready with a play. You should be able to go. It's interesting because the same thing happened with Seattle last night where Brian Greasy on the broadcast was talking about the Seattle on their final drive. is like, oh, maybe they should spike it and regroup here. And they didn't. And then they threw a you know 30-yard touchdown on that play. Like the defense, you give the defense a chance to regroup too, which some people are not really focused on. So let's look at this play here for the spike. So they had the 27-yard line, 37 seconds to go. First and 10 after a pass there. It was only 11-yard gain before that. It wasn't like this is after a 30-something-yard game where they really needed to regroup or something. They go up there and they spike it on first down, and the problem is you're giving away one of your four downs. They ended up, you know, incomplete, 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 done with 24 seconds left to go. 24 seconds were still left on the clock. So yeah, if they didn't spike it there, a couple of more seconds may have gone off, but you don't need this time to think. You are moving the ball. You are being successful offensively. You should have plays ready to go. There's no time to regroup. That Giving up that down, not having one more down, and remember the play before it went through Jalen Rager's hands, it was almost a touchdown the play before. Giving up that down is tremendously huge in that circumstance. Teams need to stop using the spike in those circumstances. It's not saving you more than maybe a couple of seconds. And if you're not ready to make a play to have the next play ready to go, that's on you as an offense in these situations. You know what you're doing. This is not, you weren't just tossed into a two-minute drill out of the middle, out of the middle of nowhere. Again, they leave 24 seconds on the clock, but they got the spike, which took away one of their four downs. Going from four downs to three downs is a huge, 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 huge difference. Don't spike in those circumstances. 
bad play by Sirianni if he called that. And if Hertz really needed it, that's a whole other discussion. But hey, don't do that, please. And let's talk about the Giants real fast. Um, sorry, I didn't talk about them much in this game, but they didn't really do anything that noteworthy. Uh, Jones had 200 yards, zero big time throws, 5.2 average depth of target. No runner receiver had more than 50 yards. And we heard before the game, unfortunately, our favorite analytical foil, Dave Gittleman, looking like he's going to be out after the season. So, you know, poor guy. Hate, hate to see him go. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with Joe Judge, whose butt might be a little bit warm. Seat might be a little hot for him. And now he's going to be able to consolidate control. So it doesn't sound great for them going forward, but we'll see. Um, okay, let's hit the next game here. Chargers at Denver Broncos. Chargers were three-point favorite at the Broncos. Ends up 28-13 Denver. The adjusted score is a little bit more narrow here because there are some big mistakes for the Chargers. 20-17 to Denver. And that's a winner for us. On our best bets, we had Denver plus two and a half, plus 105 also. So we got a little juice on that one. Uh, the headline, Chargers aren't for real. More Joe Lombardi slander. My alternative headline, Broncos are real. Playoff contenders, at least. And Herbert needs more help from talent than he needs help from scheme. Now, there'll be a fork, focus on the short passing game again for this one for Herbert. But he needs to fix up other things. They had a 20... 20th percentile running efficiency did not go well there for the Chargers. They're giving up huge run efficiency in the 80th percentile. And Herbert was pressured 19 times in this game. And, you know, the mistakes for Herbert really aren't on scheme or anything like that. One of them, of course, was just a bad, bad, bad decision. Maybe the worst decision he's made this season where he was throwing into the end zone for I don't remember if it was Cook or if it was Mike Williams, and that was intercepted by uh, Patrick Sertan. And then the second one was a little bit behind Eckler, and then again taken by Sertan for a touchdown. So those were hugely negative. 15 EPA lost on those. 56 grade for Herbert versus a 71 for Bridgewater. No big time throws for Herbert, which is a little bit concerning. But they need more down the field playmakers. That's what it comes down to. Mike Williams is a 4 5 5, 4 6 type of guy. Keenan Allen's a 4-6 guy. They have Austin Eckler out of the backfield. I mean, give him some guys he can throw the ball down the field, and then I think that'll open things up. Our friend Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer, has done a lot about how the A-dot is very related to the receiver more so than the quarterback. So you got to have the right receivers there to, to pump up uh, Herbert's A-dot. And I think what they're going to look like at receiver going forward is an interesting question. Allen... Keenan Allen has $23 million in dead money on his contract in the offseason, so he's going to stick. Only $5 million thereafter, though, so it's a, it's a possibility that something could happen afterwards for him. Mike Williams is on his fifth-year option right now, so there's a, there's, a, there's a strong possibility they let him go and they find a better vertical threat there. And, you know, Keenan Allen will be in the offseason after next. He'll be entering his age 31 season, so... That could be a logical time to, to think about what they're going to do with him. They gave him a pretty healthy contract there, which they probably did not need. Um, so again, to go back to the adjusted scores, the fact that it was so close, only three points. Some of the big things was a missed field goal for the Chargers too. The interceptions I mentioned. Um, and they had a good success rate, about the same as the Broncos. But the Broncos' success rate may be a little bit understated because of the fact that they were just killing clock and running a lot in the second half. And it was really the story of two quarterbacks for the Broncos. And that brings us to our number of the day. And that is 8.5. And that is 
represents the expected points lost by Drew Locke on only seven dropbacks. He gave up roughly 1.2 points every single time he dropped back and did something quarterback-ish. When they, asked, when, they asked him to do, when they asked him to actually do something, Drew Locke was a disaster. Uh, whereas Teddy Bridgewater added over 10 EPA when he was playing out there. Uh, Broncos are 6-5. and five. They're currently the ninth seed, but they're tied with the Chargers and the Raiders in win-loss record. And they have a tough schedule going forward, though, so they're probably not going to make the playoffs. They have a couple Kansas City games, Raiders, Chargers, Bengals, and then one easy game against Detroit. But, you know, they're close to the Patriots as far as their adjusted score differential this year, 11th in the NFL. So, again, we need to give them a little bit more respect than what they've been given. And I think they've shown it a couple of times this season in this game and against the Cowboys. Okay, Vikings, 49ers. 49ers were three and a half point favorites at home. They win by eight points, 34 to 26. My adjusted score is a little bit closer, 27-23. The headline is going to be 49ers back in the mix. The run game is unstoppable. My alternative headline is live by the G, die by the G. And the G, of course, is Jimmy G, my man. Number of the game, zero. Zero. That's how much EPA was gained by the 49ers in their rushing plays. 11 of 13 third downs were, were convert were Jimmy Garoppolo dropbacks. He converted a third and 13, a third and 11, and a third and six. Now he also had an interception and he had some bad throws on third down, but that's the live and the die by Jimmy Garoppolo. And that is really their offense here, despite the fact that people are going to be talking about the running game a lot. The running game had a great success rate though. So that's keeping them in it, but they're not, it's not explosive. It's not winning games for them. It's not getting them to 34 points in this game. That's what Jimmy Garoppolo was doing. And Jimmy Garoppolo was up to second in the NFL in EPA per play, believe it or not. Uh, This is a bad Kirk game, bad Kirk Cousins game, 61.4 grade, negative 0.2 EPA per play, zero big time throws. He was only under pressure 20% of the time. And that is an interesting stat because when it comes to the 49ers defense, I'm not sure they're fixed on that side of the ball. They've been hidden a bit by this heavy, heavy rushing attack that the 49ers have been able to have and keep their defense in the background. Uh, only 6% fast pressure rate. They're just not, not, not really getting it done there uh, defensively. Um, Cousins just simply did not make the plays that needed to be made, but that's what Kirk Cousins is going to do sometimes. Debo out for a while, but I thought it was pretty interesting that he was averaging 11 yards per carry on six rushes. I really liked that experiment they had with him, but maybe, again, for health purposes, maybe it's not the greatest thing. That, uh, that he's taking extra hits there. Okay, let's move on to the Jets at the Houston Texans, the game we've all been waiting for. But before we get to that, Western and Southern, whether it's football or financial savvy, the right questions to help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help you get ahead on both your finance, financial and fantasy scoreboards. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagrams for answers to the best questions. The best questions you can ask, Chris. Each week, submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right. The, the game we've all been waiting for, Jets at Houston Texans. Houston's three-point favorite. Shows you how bad the Jets are going into this. Jets win 21-14. Justin score. Even worse for both teams, 15 to 9. 
So six point differential versus seven points. Headline Jets win. Congratulations, I guess. Alternative headline Wilson dragged along to victory. So Wilson negative point one five EPA per play isn't the worst, but isn't bad. Forty four point one grade, which is really really bad. And the Jets ran the ball well. They and they also ran above expectation. They ran the ball fifty five percent of the time, fourteen percent above expectation, and they were in the seventieth percentile running with their run and their efficiency, with their success rate and their efficiency. So the run game was working really well. The defense was working well. And Wilson was bad, but not horrible. So he just didn't lose the game for them, but he came close. And the number of the game here, 4.7, and that's the average depth of target for Zach Wilson. So not so hot. And I know I've been hammering a lot on the fields and Lawrence, Apologensia out there. Wilson has been bad. I want to acknowledge that. He's been really bad. He's been the worst of anyone this season. And the only reason I don't harp on it that much is because, like, I think everyone's kind of in agreement. Is there anyone out there defending Zach Wilson? Maybe there are in the deep, dark corners of Jets Reddit or something. But even Jets fans are so beaten down after all of these years. I don't think they even have much hope. You probably have to convince them that Zach Wilson could be the answer right now. I mean, I think he has traits. But so do those other other guys, and I'm hammering those other guys. So I'm going to hammer Wilson. He he stinks so far. Not a good omen for his career going forward. But at the same time, it's a little bit early. So if the Jets, you know, were to play the Texans every single week, Zach Wilson can win games. But the way he played this game is not going to lead to a victory against probably anyone but the Detroit Lions or the Texans. So the other 29 teams outside of the Jets themselves. Uh, will all be losses if Zach Wilson plays the way that he played this game. And Texans, whatever, I'm not talking about that. Uh, Carolina Panthers at Miami Dolphins. Carolina, 1.5 favorite. 1.5 points favorite going into this game. 33 to 10 Miami. Uh, 23 point differential. 27 10 Miami. So still pretty good. 17 point differential by adjusted score. The headline is Cam's Wash, Tua Emerging. My alternative headline is, yeah, Cam's probably washed and not buying Tua yet. Tua is 21st in grading so far this year, and he's got himself up to 13th in EPA per play, and that's what he's been doing well. He has been efficient. He was a positive 0.3 EPA per play in this game, but only a 61 grade, and that's because He had a turnover-worthy play that didn't end up being an actual turnover for a sack. He had no big-time throws and a 3.8 average depth of target. 65% of the yards that that he put up were after the catch. So, you know, he's not having to do a whole lot. It's just never going to be big there. So I'm a little bit skeptical, even though people will look at the – QBR type of numbers, the EPA type of numbers, the 87% completion percentage, and be getting excited about what Tua's been doing recently. I'm not going to discount everything, but I'm going to say there is some skepticism about the ability to continue this going forward. But he has had a bad offensive line, so maybe that's part of it too, is uh, not throwing down the field, is that he has this bad offensive line. The number of the game is 72, and that is the yards after catch for Jalen Waddell. And this is what they really wanted for Waddell. 
and it's starting to come together for him. I liked, I didn't like the trade up for Waddle because, not because of the player, but because of giving up, you know, another blue chip player next season for uh, a blue chip player this season, which they would have gotten anyway. Didn't quite make sense. You know, they could have gotten someone like, I think it would have been in that Devontae Smith range, and they would have still had their pick for next season. But he is doing what I thought would be good pairing with Tua is Tua as a good timing guy, a good RPO passer. And you want guys who can who can generate yards after the catch for that. Not necessarily down the field route runners. And that's what Waddle did in this game. Like I said, 72 yards after the catch. He, he accounted for 137 of Tua's 230 yards. He accounted for six of the 11 first downs. He accounted for the only touchdown for the Dolphins. Uh, the top three pass plays for Tua in terms of expected points added were all to Waddle. 60 um, yak on those plays alone. And if you think about it, the depth of target on these huge plays that he was making were only, you know, only 14 yards, 10 yards, and eight yards, and he's doing the rest. So Newton looked like complete dust. Five of 21, 92 yards, two interceptions, 37.6 grade. Helped out Zach Wilson not be the worst of the week with that. Uh, It's the ninth worst grade we've seen this season, and this this season we're talking about 357 different quarterback performances they've had at, who've who've had at least 10 dropbacks. He was the ninth worst of any that we've seen. I mean, I don't think it's likely, but if Newton continues to play like this, I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing some chatter about Sam Darnold's shoulder starting to feel a little bit better. Maybe he can play at the end of the season because let's face it, if Newton's not the guy, if Newton's not the answer, PJ Walker doesn't look like the answer. You got Sam Darnold, you already guaranteed his fifth-year option for next season. There's going to be incentive to put him back in and see if maybe he can do something. If you're going to be stuck with him anyway. So I'm not sure about the incomplete fracture of the scapula or whatever he's got going on, whether he can really come back or not. But there is incentive for them. There are 18, 19 million reasons, the, the, the money, the dollars that they've guaranteed him next season for them to still give him a look, despite the fact that he was bad this season, especially if Newton struggles going forward. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, Christian McCaffrey out for the rest of the season. Just really, really bad situation. I know some people want to blame the injury management on the Panthers. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I think it's difficult sometimes when you start dipping into it a little too much on who's to blame on these things. Sometimes you just have bad luck, bad luck. Lots of reps is always going to be a problem, but if you're not going to use these guys, these running backs earlier in their career, then why are they there in the first place? So it's kind of a catch 22. You use a running back too much. It becomes an injury prone position, but if you don't use them that much, they eventually age out of usefulness anyway. So, and when you're paying someone so much money, like rookies, rookie contracts are so high for these running backs relative to the rest of the league that you don't want to necessarily ease them in or give them redshirt years in their career too. You don't want to have multi-backfields, multi-head backfields when you're paying someone a top 10 running back salary from day one. Again, it's just another reason why you don't, you don't take a running back this early. You don't extend them like this. But this is not a critique of a running back. I'm not shooting on running backs, as some people will say. This is not that. 
This is a critique of just, you know, strategy of building a team. That's the way it goes. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. It involves contracts. It involves draft picks. It involves money. That's what it does. Okay, we're getting mercifully to the last game of the week. The Atlanta Falcons at the Jacksonville Jaguars. Atlanta was a two-point favorite. They win by seven points, 21 to 14. My adjusted score is 26 to 16. So 10 points, so a little bit wider. The headline here is Jags are toast. My alternative, well, just start over the season. Just, just, just cancel the season, I should say, for the headline. Sorry, I'm, I'm making this up on the fly here and not doing a very good job. My alternative headline is, I don't know what to do with the Jags. I've never seen a new regime come in have so much at his disposable at his disposable at his disposal when it comes to draft picks, multiple first rounders, the generational talent available, free agent money you can go and spend. Really no holds barred on what you can do. You invest a lot into the first season, into being good, not necessarily that patient. And it just all falls apart on top. Now I've already canceled Urban Meyer. So maybe I could cancel him again. Maybe they'll get lucky and he'll, you know, take the Notre Dame job or or take one of these openings that are happening in college football and they'll let him out of his contract, which it kind of sounds like they would have wanted to do after his little um, incident, if you will, from earlier this season where um, where they it sounded like they could maybe want to get out of that. Maybe uh, Shad Khan and everyone there in ownership wouldn't be upset about that. and. You know, the numbers overall for the Jaguars weren't that bad. It was a 46% success rate, about flat as far EPA-wise. But they were just much better running the ball than they were dropping back to pass. They were up in the 85th percentile, something like that, for their running. Even though, you know, James Robinson did have a fumble, which took away from that. And it was a relatively good game for Lawrence. But when we're saying a relatively good game is a 65 grade, and losing a tenth of EPA per play, and 55% completion percentage with some accuracy issues. That shows you where we are with Trevor Lawrence right now. That's the number of the game. 65 grade for him, and we're somewhat saying, ah, not, not, not bad, not bad for him. I think it's getting harder and harder for anyone to say that this is all on the situation. He clearly has some accuracy issues. Now, they say players, even. Urban Meyer admits to the fact that players aren't where they're supposed to be. They aren't necessarily lined up where they're supposed to be. They aren't necessarily running the right routes, things like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, we adjust for that. We make an adjustment for that. But we also just need to see a little bit more before we can feel like it's been a positive and not disappointing season for Lawrence this year. But I'm still waiting. Still, still a handful of games to go. Not writing anything off, even close at this point in time. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in. I'll be back at you on Friday with a review of Thursday Night Football and then also picks for the weekend and previews on more games for the weekend. I appreciate everyone tuning in, the comments on YouTube. I appreciate those. I like to respond to those also sometimes when 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 necessary. Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the pod. Uh, watch it on YouTube and like it there too. That helps me. Helps me feel good about myself. Um, and I'll be talking to you again on Friday. See you later.